Hello, everyone. It's your old friend, Joe. Welcome to Strange Sound. This is episode 43 of Strange Sound. I'm recording this on um, the weekend of Christmas 2020. Today is actually Boxing Day in Canada. It's the 26th, and it's a Saturday, and I am recording this as I traditionally do on the Saturday before I post usually on Monday so here I am. I'm situated in time. You know exactly the moment that I'm talking about. You know exactly what happened on this Saturday. And uh, if I don't comment on it or if I don't seem knowledgeable about things that happened on either Sunday or Monday, it's because I'm recording this on Saturday. <laughs> uh, just to, just to return to my standard disclaimer, if I may, uh, the opinions expressed on Strange Sound are those of myself, alone. They are my opinions alone. They don't represent the opinions of anyone associated with me. Um, They don't represent the opinions of my employer or my neighbors or my family or my housemates or my uh, cats or my, I don't know, people that I'm acquainted with on social media. Uh, There may be, by coincidence, people who agree with me out there. I don't know. I can't think of anyone who agrees with me on every single topic. But there we go. Uh, Again, Strange Sound is just me. So uh, anyway, we'll take it from there. Hope everyone is doing okay. Hope everyone's holiday season is going well. Um, Hope you're practicing caution as you celebrate the holidays, that you're not gathering in large groups of people outside of your pod, so to speak and that you're masking, and that you're social distancing, and that you're doing all the things that you need to do to keep yourself safe, and to keep from adding yourself to the growing number of corpses that are being produced by this ridiculous, I will call it the Trump virus. The Trump virus is still killing people at a sickening rate, and uh, it's largely because uh, we haven't taken adequate steps to arrest it. Um, in the way that this type of virus has been arrested um, in other contexts for pretty much the entire last century, um, you know, from the influenza pandemic back in in the late uh, 19-teens um, to the present, uh, back then, they knew they had to mask up. They had to sort of stay out of each other's way. They discovered that. That was the thing you did, right? You know, it's the same type of situation as with, like, Ebola in the sense that, you know, there you have to be careful about handling the dead and, you know, <laughs> all these things that, that people would ordinarily do under circumstances when a relative passes away um, or, you know, human interactions of various kinds, you have to alter your behavior and that's the best way to fight it until there's some kind of either cure or vaccine or whatever. And yes, there are vaccines on the way. That's true, but it's going to take a long time 
before we get everyone vaccinated. And hopefully um, those vaccines will be as effective as advertised, but we don't really know. So uh, the thing that we can do to stay safe and to keep from keep people from dying in large numbers, as they have been just recently particularly, is to um, <laughs> do the stuff we know works. Practice social distancing, wear the masks, wash hands. Um, just be careful. And try to, you know, keep within your um, circle of acquaintance. Um, test as frequently as is practicable for you. Uh, this is not something that everyone can do. Uh, I'm fortunate in as much as my employer uh, tests on a weekly basis. They're taking a slight hiatus during the holidays, but they'll be back to testing on a weekly basis once again. So I'm in a group that's been tested many times. I've been tested dozens of times over the past few months. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Um, that adds a bit of confidence. Um, but, you know, it's, this is a huge disaster. The Trump virus is a disaster. And uh, our government is doing almost nothing to contain it. And uh, as I speak, you know, people are gathering. I have a neighbor that, you know, had a party, you know, on Christmas and, you know, good on them. I'm glad they're having a good time. But my guess is that they had people that are outside of their immediate um, sort of household group gathering together in a small space. And, uh, you know, uh, that's the way this thing spreads. Hate to say it. That's just the way it is. And, uh, you know, until we take it seriously, until we do what we need to do to slow it down, because it's obvious, you know, our current government is not doing anything practically until such time as our government does what they need to do to constrain and contain this virus and turn it around. Um, we need to act. We need to act on behalf of our friends and neighbors and family members um, to keep everyone safe. So, you know, uh, that's my three penny lecture for today. I know you don't want to hear it. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> you've probably heard it from everyone else who has a podcast or a television show. No one wants to hear this anymore. Anyway, it's still true. And it's just appalling. I mean, I've been over this before, so it's it's just the idea that we can sit here and and you know tolerate the fact that all these people are dying in front of us. You know, they're they're you know, it's just I have no words. I have no words. It's disgusting. It's it's such a bizarre time in American life right now. <laughs> I mean, and I've been through um, some strange moments in the in the recent history of this country over the course of my, you know, sixty-one years on the planet, and uh, I'm I, I don't think I remember any time that's been more upsetting in that fundamental way, as far as like the number of deaths and the the kind of. I'd say, you know, lack of concern that there is. I hate to sound, you know, 
I hate to sound like you know Bob Dole in 1996, but where is the outrage? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, are people you know outraged by this? I don't know. Maybe they should be. But anyway, disgusting. Uh, that said, hope you're having a nice holiday. <laughs> um, I'm here to uh, talk about the incoming Biden administration. Um, for the most part, that was my intention. Um, because that's that's the thing that's happening. I should just as a short update, I should say um, the and again, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I live in the 22nd congressional district in the state of New York, um, which is upstate encompasses the city of Utica and I think Binghamton uh, goes down to Binghamton, goes north quite a ways. Um, it's a big sprawling district. I've talked about this before. Um, the race this year or this this past election in November was between incumbent Anthony Brindisi, a Democrat centrist kind of uh, problem solver caucus guy, and Former Congress member Claudia Tenney, who's a Trump Republican, um, this is the only race in the country that has not yet been called because they've basically split the electorate down the middle. And I've described this previously. The last time I mentioned this on the podcast, uh, Claudia Tenney was was ahead by a handful of votes. Now I'm I'm seeing reports from the Brindisi campaign that the Brindisi campaign sees itself as being ahead by about a dozen votes. It keeps going back and forth like this. This is the kind of race it is. It's down to handfuls of votes. I was driving home from work the other day and I had NPR on. It was the local NPR channel and um, they're based in Oswego, but they do a report on on our area, and they mentioned the race because it is, once again, it's the last uncalled congressional race in the country. It's still out. There's still been no declared winner, and we will not have a we will not have a member of the House of Representatives when the next Congress convenes in January. It's just not going to happen. Um, but they had <laughs> part of the report was. Um, it's understood that the difference between the candidates are is somewhere between three and five votes. I think they said, <laughs> like the, they're cutting it very fine. Somehow that's still an estimated amount. Between three and five votes separate the two candidates. What? And it's been, it's been literally back and forth about three times where Brindisi's ahead. Usually it's by like twelve. Brindisi's ahead by twelve. Claudia is ahead by 13 or 12, and then Berdizzi's ahead by 12 again. You know, it's just weird. It's literally a number of votes that you could contain in my neighborhood is apparently going to decide this election. Whatever side it comes down on, there's going to be a legal challenge, and it's going to take time to sort that out. And God only knows what's going to happen, because they're right now they're counting... Uh, provisional ballots and and affidavits and you know they're being ruled in or ruled out depending on on who it goes in front of which judge it goes in front of and you know it's it's all a matter of litigation at this point 
But I think it's fair to say that this election is too close to call in the 22nd District of New York. The electorate was literally cut down the middle. And when that happens in any race, there's so much confusion over, you know, who's eligible to vote and who's not, you know, which votes were properly cast, which ballots were properly cast and which were not, which ends up being a legal opinion, that it's almost impossible to determine who got more votes. So <laughs> this is going to continue for a while. And I'm I'm reminded of Al Franken's uh, race back in 2008 when he was, when there was a disputed result in that election and it wasn't until halfway through 2009 that he was actually seated in the Senate. Um, that was partly because of, you know, the uh, Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, I think was headed by John Cornyn that year, was bankrolling uh, legal challenges and they were trying to keep Franken from being seated because he would have been the 60th vote the 60th Democrat in the Senate that year. Hard to imagine, right? You remember those days? Anyone out there remember those days? 60 Democrats in the Senate? It's just hard to picture now. It's hard to picture because it's like, it it just seems like the Senate now is just so structurally, you know, um, advantageous to the Republicans now. Because so many states are, you know, in essentially they've turned red. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of appalling. Um, even though the presidential race this year went, you know, semi lopsidedly towards towards the Democrats, uh, the congressional and senatorial races, eh, not so much. Anyway, that's that's where New York 22 is right now. Um, split right down the middle. And I'll keep you posted to the extent that I'm able. In any case, I was going to talk about uh, Biden's incoming administration uh, just briefly. It is the holiday. I have to light the Yule log. Anyway, um... He's been assembling his foreign policy team. I I mentioned a couple of times on this podcast um, over the course of the uh, general election campaign, mostly. Uh, but I think maybe even during the, the primary campaign, I might have brought it up. Um, though, I'd, you know, I had only started this um, podcast back then. In any case, um, I had mentioned that if you looked at Joe Biden's campaign website and if you looked for foreign policy positions on that site, you would look in vain. <laughs> there really was practically no information whatsoever. I mean, there was, a, there was a policy area of the site and the issues that were posted were almost all having to do with domestic policy. To the extent that it focused on foreign policy, it was always something that related back to domestic policy. Um, the Paris Climate Accords, for instance, aid to Central American governments to stem the tide of immigration. 
like, you know, somehow working constructively with either Honduras or Guatemala or, or whatever. I mean, I, th- I think he went into a little bit of detail about his policy proposals for that. Um, but really no overarching foreign policy statements on there. And I was, I was kind of gobsmacked by that, frankly. Really didn't say anything about it at all. Uh, which seems strange. I, it just feels like they didn't want to go there, you know. They really wanted to keep the focus on Trump and keep the focus on domestic policy. And that's essentially what they did. That I was kind of off the table. Now, you might argue that the reason why I was off the table is because there's a broad bipartisan consensus regarding foreign policy and that it just isn't a deciding issue between the elites in both parties. And I think that's broadly true. I mean, I've heard some discussions of this on various podcasts. I know that um, Jeremy Scahill talked to uh, someone from the um, American Conservative, I think. Um, and it was a good interview. And uh, I, you know, I, I actually agree with a lot of what was said in there. And uh, it was nuanced. It wasn't all one way or the other. But I've heard, I've heard other discussions as well that were that sort of positioned Trump as a slight exception to the bipartisan foreign policy consensus. And I know I've raised on this podcast before the fact that Trump may himself, by impulse, be um, a kind of an outlier or a loose cannon with regard to foreign policy. Uh, American foreign policy as it has traditionally been understood. And I think that's that's partly true. But the administration that he built and the um, the institutions that it's built upon um, still pursued that broad bipartisan consensus, I think, um, with some nuanced differences, but nothing I think that's that's fundamentally different. So I, I often give the example of Korea. Um, yes, he made significant strides in building a relationship with the leader of North Korea and sort of lowering tensions on the Korean peninsula um, in concert with uh, what the South Koreans themselves were doing at that time under Moon Jae-in. And, you know, good on him for that. But underlyingly, America's foreign policy with regard to Korea has not fundamentally changed. Yes, we've stood down from participating in those massive um, war games that we typically engage in uh, with the South Korean military, which is, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, essentially under the direct command of the American military <laughs> in case of war, right? So it's these are these are massive mock attacks against the North. Um, he did manage to um, to cancel those, which I thought was was a that was a positive step. And actually meeting with Kim Jong-un and um, having several meetings and sort of building a relationship there, I thought that was a positive step. Now, was Trump doing it for all the right reasons? I don't think so. I think it you know, I think he saw it as kind of an extension of his own ego, you know. Um and I've talked about this before. He 
he kind of did the right thing for probably the wrong reasons. I can't see into his soul or his mind. I don't know what he was thinking. I mean, it was a positive impulse. But again, the underlying foreign policy, the underlying policy towards North Korea and the Korean Peninsula in, in general is basically unchanged. There's still a confrontation that we're deeply invested in. North Korea's biggest problem is with the United States. It's bigger than the problem that they have with South Korea, particularly under South Korea's current leadership. So again, it's a nuanced difference. Um, If Trump was a competent and um, genuine advocate of peace on the Korean Peninsula, then he might have been able to make some real progress during his administration and in so doing might have, you know, earned himself a Nobel Prize. And deservedly so, I should say. Uh, But he didn't, and he's not. (laughs) He's incompetent, and he's probably motivated by other reasons, you know, what isn't really committed to peace. Um, But, again, I can't see into his soul, but I, I would say... You know, he missed an opportunity there, much like he missed the opportunity with the COVID crisis to actually bring the thing under control and use his massive influence over the people least inclined to um, to participate in like a, you know, in, in masking or in, you know, staying close to home or whatever. He could have used his influence with the folks most resistant to those steps to sort of bring this thing under control, and he probably would have been reelected as a result and might have deserved it in some people's eyes, right? But he didn't do that, and he didn't move policy forward on the North Korean, on the Korean question. And for all the bluster, he hasn't really moved policy that much further ahead on Afghanistan, on Libya, uh, on Syria, not really. Just kind of continued the the Obama policy, which was pretty threadbare and horrible. Um, Iraq, same thing. They pursued the war against the Islamic State um, that uh, Obama had begun to engage in, and and they they completed it. And they in Iraq, that was kind of a scorched earth policy. Frankly, they killed a lot of people. Uh, that was underreported, but it did happen um, in in some of uh, some of the cities in northern Iraq. Um, pretty pretty nasty stuff, but they you know it it was more or less of a piece with the previous administration. As much as Trump will try to make it sound like it's different, well, what we have coming in is a foreign policy team that more or less represents the more interventionist side of Obama's foreign policy. Um, Probably the signal example is um, Tony Blinken, who's been nominated for Secretary of State. And Tony Blinken uh, was in favor of the Libya intervention. Um. He's a bit contrite about that now, but he was in favor of it. He was in favor of the surge into Afghanistan. 
Um, he argued for arms to Saudi Arabia to be used in Yemen and supported the um, supported our efforts to support the uh, Saudis in their war against Yemen. Uh, so these are not good signs. Um, and again, this is <laughs> this was a blank slate during the campaign, wasn't it? Right? Did they talk about this? Did they have any policy papers posted about this uh, on the Joe Biden website? No. Um, he might have mentioned pieces of this. Uh, in very general terms during the the various debates, maybe included it in speeches. Um, he did publish an article in Foreign Policy, but that was really just a matter of weeks ago, I think. I think that was after the election. So it's like, this is, <laughs> I mean, seriously, this is, uh, this was a black box until um, he started announcing and um, appointments. Now, it's not a huge surprise because we know where Joe Biden has been on the issues over the years. He was a supporter of the Iraq war. He supported the invasion. In fact, he was a key player in bringing it about as he was head of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee in the Senate at the time. And, uh, and you know, he he did not have witnesses against the war in front of his committee. Uh, during that time, it was all people arguing for the war. And, uh, you know, they wanted to get behind it because I've discussed this before, too. It's like at the time, that was considered the smart money in the Democratic Party. I was like, okay, you know, let's get behind this thing because we don't want to be, we don't want to be that guy, you know, that guy that was against the Iraq war and the Iraq war is going to go really well. And it's going to, it's going to be fast. It's going to be quick. Uh, we're going to overthrow Saddam, and everything's going to be great. We don't want to be on the wrong side of that because we want to run for president, right? I think, uh, actually, Gary Trudeau had it right. I wish I had a copy of the uh, of the cartoon so that I could, and maybe I can find it, and I'll post a link to it if I can. Um, he had this great cartoon at the time that was, it was a shot of uh, the Capitol, and it had you know uh, speech bubbles coming out. You know, we're you know we're all in favor of the Iraq War unless things go wrong, <laughs> and then we'll be against it. And then, but then if uh, things turn around, and then then we'll be for it again. But it's a matter of principle. <laughs> and it was kind of like, you know, that's that's where they were. That's where most of them were. They were in favor of it because they were looking at their own political future rather than considering what was best for either Iraq or for the United States or for the rest of the world, what the implications of that would be. And, uh, you know, they disregarded that in favor of their own perceived political fortunes. And as I've mentioned before, it was that selfishness that, detonated their own campaigns later on when they ran for president. So, I mean, not that Biden was a serious contender, particularly in 2008, but Hillary Clinton certainly was. And she lost probably because of her vote in favor of the Iraq war. 
so I mean, we've got <laughs> we've got uh, a president coming in who was in favor of the Iraq War, has since um, you know turned against it in a lot of ways. I don't know if he's actually come out and said that was a mistake. Um, I think he's pretty much said, you know, based on what I knew at the time, it seemed like a good idea, all that, which is a breezy way of saying don't look into it too closely. Because what was known at the time was known very broadly at the time, was known in the Senate and outside of the Senate, and it was there was a lot of information <laughs> available about these claims um, against Iraq, and uh, there was no case, right? Not that, <laughs> not that there's ever much of a case for invading and overthrowing a, another country's government. Um, I can't think of a good one, but in any case, uh, the case that they were making was full of holes, and it was pretty obvious at the time from the outside. And I I have to say, I mean, most of the stuff that I had read uh, prior to the invasion turned out to be true <laughs> and is relatively non-controversial now. And if they had listened to us, you know, we wouldn't have done the invasion. But, you know, that was that was the policy that was wanted broadly by the political class. And, you know, we've paid the price for that. But again, we've got a foreign policy team coming in that um, includes people who were very supportive of the intervention in Libya, who were very supportive of a broader intervention into Syria, who were very supportive of continuing the occupation in the, the ongoing sort of endless war in Afghanistan, um, who were supportive of the war in Iraq um, and the war in Yemen. There are also people who are, you know, connected to the military-industrial complex in in a very um, in a very troubling way. Let's say uh, that they've served as consultants. Biden's uh, nominee for defense secretary uh, is on the board of Raytheon. He um, ran a consultancy that would um, that would help connect um, military contractors with the contracts that they seek from the Pentagon. He himself was a general. Um, Blinken, his you know foreign policy shop, his consulting shop, you know, promised to put you know, his clients right in the situation room with the president in essence um, because of his connections. Uh, that's the shop that he set up with uh, Michelle Flournoy, who is being considered for, I think, defense secretary. And uh, yeah, this is a group that's heavily invested in the uh, military industrial complex and in just the bipartisan foreign policy consensus that has driven American foreign policy for decades. Now, I want to make clear, um, (laughs) this is no surprise, and it would be wrong to expect anything better than this, but we need to be prepared 
uh, to push back against these people. And I think it's the people on the activist left, left on the activist left, um, what's considered the far left now. Um, it's it's people um, on that side of these questions that will need to really make their voices heard in the years to come. Um, as questions will come up, you know, issues will come up, events will confront this administration, and they will be called upon to make a choice. They'll be called upon to make some kind of foreign policy decision. And uh, that's, you know, that's where the rubber hits the road. And we're going to have to be there, and we're going to have to make our voices heard um, as quickly and as effectively as possible. We're going to need to push our representatives. We're also going to need to, you know, just speak out and try to bring people with us. Um, because we don't want to see another Libya, and we don't want to see another Yemen, and we want to see, <laughs> we want to see these endless wars come to an end, right? Um. Trump has talked about pulling troops out of Afghanistan. That sounds nice, but I haven't seen him do it yet. He's had four years. Has he done it? No. Uh, He might do it as a last-minute thing. We'll see. I doubt it, but it's possible. Um, And if he doesn't, it's going to be left um, on Biden's doorstep, and Biden's going to have to decide whether or not, you know, Biden and his team of Tony Blinken and a bunch of other people are going to have to decide whether or not they want to, you know, pull back on a war that they're heavily invested in. Now, to be fair, Biden was against the surge in Afghanistan back in 2009. He was against it. But uh, his opposition to that also entails probably a you know, a willingness to leave a force in place, much the way that um, General Petraeus has uh, advocated for a residual force of maybe 2,000 or 2,500 American personnel to maintain a footprint. This was uh, reported by that um, that writer from the uh, that writer editor from the American Conservative um, on uh, Intercepted. My guess is that they're completely down with that. I would be surprised if they're willing to actually pull people out of Afghanistan entirely. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. There has been a peace negotiation underway for years. Um, It hasn't been concluded. It hasn't sort of reached a conclusion that's agreeable to all parties. And it's, there's a there's a question mark over whether the United States is really committed to the idea of leaving it to the Afghans to work out their differences and pulling the troops out. I really don't. I don't think so. I don't think either party, either major party, is ready for this, and I think they're going to have to be pressed on this. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who think that, you know, well, maybe we should stay in Afghanistan forever. 
you know, maybe we, because of 9-11, we want to make sure that no one's there plotting another attack. Well, you know, I mean, that, that attack wasn't just plotted in Afghanistan. It was plotted elsewhere, too. It was plotted in Berlin. It was plotted in Florida. It was, and these people were all over the place. Um, and one of the things that was motivating them was our occupation of our troop presence in Saudi Arabia at the time. That was one of the things they were railing against. So not justifying anything. I'm just saying, if you want to know what they were talking about when they planned this attack on 9-11 in 2001, that's what they were talking about. They were talking about American troops in Saudi Arabia near the holy sites. Um, that was unacceptable to them. So, uh, uh, you know, what are we doing in Afghanistan? Who can say? Will the new incoming Biden administration have an enlightened view of that? I don't know. I don't see any evidence of it, but we'll see. We'll see what they do when they actually get into office. Um, all I can say is that that bipartisan consensus is pretty strong. If it can withstand Trump, it's very strong, regardless of you know what the loose cannon is is um, pointing at at any given moment. That you know, that's a loose cannon on a big battleship, <laughs> and that battleship is steaming in the same direction it's always been steaming in ever since you know eighty years ago. All I can say is. Uh, we can expect more of the same, largely, uh, and we're going to have to push back against it, as we always have. So even though we need to sort of concentrate on, on domestic policy in a lot, of, a lot of different respects, and talked about some of that on this podcast, let's not forget foreign policy. This is pretty important stuff. In any case, uh, it's the holidays, and that's all I got. I'd like to hear what you have to say. You can leave a one-minute voicemail message for me at uh, my site at anchor.fm slash strange sound. I'm going to say that again. You can leave a one-minute voicemail at anchor.fm slash strange sound. You can also find me on Twitter at strange sound pod. And you can uh, tweet at me or you can send me a private message or whatever you like. You can also go to big-green.net and follow the contact link to, to find other ways to get in touch with me. I'm pretty easy to reach. Just reach out, uh, talk to me, push back, tell me what you think. Be glad to turn this into a conversation. I've said this often enough. Coming to the end of the first calendar year of this uh, this podcast, this should be the last one that shows up before the first of the year. So uh, let me just say for everyone here at Strange Sound and everyone is basically me, have a good new year. Have a good holiday season. Hopefully see you uh, during the course of the next year um, with another episode of Strange Sound. Thanks for listening. Take care. <laughs>